thinking as Jim was sharing and after Harlan uh, spoke last week and I just heard just little snippets from his message and heard that Harlan got emotional at one point you almost wonder how in the world we ever get through elders meetings but the truth is grace is an emotional thing how anybody can look into the eyes of grace can consider the vastness of Jesus' love on the cross for us and the Father's desire, as Jim said, to draw us close to himself. How anybody can look at that and not get emotional is beyond me. Because grace is an emotional thing. And I guess that's why the name of Jesus gets more and more precious to me as the years go by. And I've shared before that the name Jesus can be a kind of typical Sunday school answer. People will, you know, I remember being in Sunday school and if we didn't know the answer, we just said Jesus and we were usually pretty close to being right. You know? But he is so much more than a Sunday school answer. And as we go through the study of the Bible and the Old Testament scriptures, you know, I was asked when we were in Israel, why would a group of Christians study Torah? And the Jewish people there, several of them that I talked to, were surprised that we had spent the last three, three years or so in the Torah, <laughs> the Hebrew scriptures. What are you doing there? Well, the true answer is we're there because Jesus is there. And because we see him over and over and time and time again. And I woke up this morning <coughs> with a cold, as you can tell, and, and uh, yesterday and today just kind of dealing with it. And, and Cheryl asked me, are you up to this? And you know, the truth is, lousy as I feel, there's really nothing else I'd rather be doing right now than talking about Jesus. It makes me feel better. Um, we sang the song, Strength Will Rise As We Wait Upon the Lord. Worship makes me feel better. And I could be sitting home and, you know, wrapped up in a blanket right now, snibbling away, or, or we could be talking about Jesus. So I won't be shaking anyone's hands this morning. I don't want you to get what I've got. But I do want to spend a few more minutes together just talking about Jesus. Considering the love of the Father and how how wonderful it is how much he cares for all of us and then I'll go home and wrap up in a blanket would you all pray with me God you are so good your grace is so evident and your spirit so so warm and comforting before we go on I gotta pray for my brother Jim I know this has been a hard couple of years I know physically just with the disease he's carrying and, and having to fight I know it's rough and I am so touched Father by how he views this as opportunity to spend more time with you and Lord while I know that's a blessing I just pray that you'll give relief and peace and healing to Jim some of the pain that he deals with day in and day out through the nights 
and just take care of this son of yours. And Father, for all of us, I pray that you'll give us hope. A hope beyond the eventualities of our lives. Beyond our circumstances, beyond our day-to-day grind. A hope, Father, that is real and living. And full of faith. We pray even in this time we spend, the next few minutes, Lord, and the word that we read, would you just give us hope and lift our eyes to see Jesus. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just two verses out of Judges this morning. (coughs) Two verses. Judges chapter 10. I'd like to turn there and encourage you to do so. Judges chapter 10. When we get to the seventh judge, a man by the name of Tola. Verse 1, chapter 10 says, Now after Abimelech died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, not my words, a man of Issachar arose to save Israel, and he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, then he died and was buried in Shamir. Praise came to me this last week as I was studying and considering these things. And it's my considered opinion that a life lived looking back is a life lived in despair. A life lived looking back is a life lived in despair. And we can all slip into that mentality from time to time. We can all get to that place where we look back, we're held captive by poor decisions, where we worry over previous wrongs or failures or sins. We look back to times that we think were better days. But I want you to hear this verse, and I've shared this recently. This has really probably been the verse of the month for me. John 1.16 John writes, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. This whole idea of grace upon grace just blows the first concept of grace right out of the box. I always knew God's grace was there. God's grace was available. That grace was huge. It was like arms that could reach all the way around and cover my sin. But the Bible takes it a step further. The Spirit says it's not just grace. It's grace upon grace. You can never run out. His grace is so vast, so huge. It's described as grace upon grace. And the thing about grace upon grace is it always leads us forward. Because grace upon grace covers over, wipes out, cleanses all the things behind that we don't have any reason to look back in despair, but only to look forward in hope. Grace upon grace leads us forward. Just when I think I've come to the end of grace, there's always more. And so Paul writes in Philippians 3.12, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Paul also writes in Titus 2.13, one of my favorite verses, we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And the only valid reason that I can think of, the only valid reason I can figure for looking back is when it's useful for reaching forward. If we look back, let us only do so when it's helpful, when it's beneficial, when it's useful for looking forward, for moving ahead, for pressing on. Keep your finger in Judges chapter 10 and flip over to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, called by some the Hall of Faith. The writer of the book of Hebrews takes time here in this 11th chapter and writes out, takes us on a historical journey. He looks back. But he looks back to look forward. He looks back at great people of faith. Beginning at verse 1, Hebrews 11, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, verse 6, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So the writer starts back in Genesis with the very creation, and begins to move forward. And we have seen all these people of faith. We've also seen people of great failure. But beginning with the creation, we've seen Adam and Eve. And then moving on, we saw Cain and Abel. And Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, that man who walked with God, and he was not because God took him. First rapture. <laughs> was Enoch. Just went home because they were having such a good time that day. And it moves on in verse 7. It says, By faith Noah, the next major player in the Bible, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah and the flood. And then it continues on up. That's in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 12. By faith Abraham when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. Do you ever feel like that? <laughs> I don't know where I'm going but I know the Lord's leading and that's all I need to know. By faith, verse 9, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise and, as a, and in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac, his son, and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Jacob also his son. For he was looking for the city, Jacob actually his great-grandson. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead, <laughs> Abraham, at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And all these, watch this, all these died in faith, without receiving the promises, 
But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Do you hear what he's saying? If they're looking back rather than looking forward... They might as well just go home. But they weren't thinking about behind. They were thinking about what lay ahead. And so in faith, they were able to move forward. Even though they didn't receive the promises, they knew the promises would come. And so they moved forward. By faith, verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, verse 17, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac, your descendants shall be called. For he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he had also received him back as a type. Abraham thought Isaac was really going to die. He really believed he was going to sacrifice Isaac, but he believed God somehow miraculously was going to resurrect Isaac without any idea that that could happen. It had never happened before, but he believed it. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, who we know is Israel, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. He said, listen, you're in Egypt now, but when you go back to the promised land, take my bones with you. How do you have any idea they were going to go back to the promised land? And indeed, it was 400 years later that the Israelites would go back to the promised land and carry his bones with them. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Great choice. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, some may read this and say, wait a minute, Joseph considered the reproach of Christ greater? Well, how did he know Jesus? Well, the word there is Christ in the Greek and the Hebrew is Mashiach. And so what it's telling us is Joseph had a sense of Messiah. That Messiah or, sorry, Moses had a sense of Messiah, that Messiah would come. And so because of this sense, this prophetic understanding, Messiah would come, he believed and considered that better than the passing rewards of life there in Egypt. By, by faith, verse 27, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Who is him who is unseen? At that point, Christ, Mashiach. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Why? No faith. Verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Even a harlot in faith was saved. You see, grace upon grace. And it tells us in verse 32, what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, one of the judges we just talked about, and Barak, 
who fought with Deborah, Samson, a judge yet to come, Jephthah, that's an interesting story, of David and Samuel, the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness they were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection, and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, and all these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. It is the epic of history. Pirates of the Caribbean 3 does not come close. I saw that yesterday, and it's, it's a cool movie. It's a little out there. Great epics, but all of the ideas of man, even the Lord of the Rings trilogy, man comes up with these great epic ideas, these fantasies, and none of the fantasies of man can even approach the reality, the history of God's people of faith. It is a marvelous, marvelous tale. And it's true. And these people live this way. People like you and me. And how did they live this way? They lived this way by looking forward. They had hope. They had a living hope. Which is why the writer goes on in, verse, in chapter 12 and says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set where? Before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before Him, not for the life lived behind Him. Remember, Jesus came out of glory. He came from the heavens. God, in the heavens, He set His glory aside. Paul says in Philippians 2, He emptied Himself, setting aside that former glory, coming down, and then He lived for the joy set before Him which will be the return to His glory, but also bringing along with Him those He had saved. What a fantastic, wonderful truth, an incredible story. And over the past three and a half years, as I said, we've looked back over the pages of ancient Scripture so that we might learn to see forward, to run for the joy that is set before us. And now we're in the book of Judges and we're reading more stories of faith. And we've seen seven judges, six of them, and we're looking at the seventh one this morning. Midweek we finished the story of Gideon and his evil son Abimelech. And if you weren't able to be with us, by the way, Judges 9 is one of the most fascinating passages in the Bible. And I know I say that about every chapter, but this one is really true. It's amazing. And if you weren't able to be with us, I encourage you to pick up the CD. Not because I want you to hear me drone on and on, but because I want you to hear the story. Judges chapter 9 contains the first parable ever spoken in Scripture. Spoken by a man named Jotham, and I don't have time to go into it this morning. But it's an amazing chapter, and it closes out the story of Gideon with his son Abimelech, who is an evil man. And I think one of the judges, he judged Israel for three short years. Now, from time to time, people will ask me, Rick, why are you so intent on teaching the Word? 
Can't we just have a Sunday where we worship the whole time or, or do something else? It seems like every time we're there, if that's all you do, you just teach, you teach, you teach, you teach. Why, why do you keep doing that? Aren't there other aspects of Christian life? And my response to that is, is mixed and varied. There are times where I respond and go, you know, am I, am I pushing too hard on the teaching? And almost immediately every time, I'm reminded with what the Lord said to me when we started the bridge, teach the word. Teach the word, Rick. That's a sword worth falling on. But gang, I also think about the fact that when it comes to the study of the Word of God, in comparison to all other things that we do, it's one of the things that unfortunately we do the least. There are many among us who, if you come Sunday morning and Wednesday night, and don't study in between, you're getting two hours of the Word a week. Two hours, that's it. Now I encourage you to do a whole lot more than that. To be in the Word every day. Two hours a day would be great. Three hours a day would be fantastic. The reality is we all have lives that we're living and we have jobs and we have responsibilities and things that we have to do, which is why the Lord provides for us teachers. It's why I am so blessed to be surrounded by elders who say, Rick, we want you studying. We want you preparing. We want you, that's your role. That's your primary role as teacher. Why we have less along. It's not so I can shirk other pastoral responsibilities, but part of the reason that less has come alongside me as a pastor is so that we have someone who is focusing more of his time in prayer, not that I don't pray, and comfort and care and considering the needs. The teaching of the Word is so critically important. But we've got to understand something, gang. We don't study the Bible to expand our knowledge or fill our heads with history. If that's what it's about, we are, we are on a losing track. We study the Word of God so that we may do exactly as Jim talked about at communion this morning, so that we may draw nearer to Him. So that our relationship with Jesus Christ can become more full and more rich and more precious. That's why we're in the Word. That's why we open these pages. You know, other than that, I don't care about Tola. I don't care about Abimelech. These are guys I've never met. Abimelech's a guy I probably will never meet after his life. That's not why we're in these pages. We are in these pages to see Jesus and know Him better and understand Him more. Jesus said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. Psalm 40, verse 7. And repeated, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Luke 24, verse 27, tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the scriptures. Moses and the prophets, in other words, the Torah, starting there, Jesus began his, his explanation of who he was as he spoke to two men on this road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. And I'm telling you all this to encourage you that as we go through these judges, one after another after another, please don't go through them just to fill your heads with more names. We look at the judges to see Jesus. And we can, if our eyes are open, see Jesus in the judges. With every single one. Oh, oh, you mean like when he came to Gideon as the angel of the Lord? No, that's not what I'm talking about. Although we do see these Christophanies, these appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. What I'm talking about is in the personalities, the characteristics, the nature of the judges themselves. And each one of these people that we've talked about already this morning. You can see aspects of the characteristic of Christ. You can also see contrasts to the Christ in some people. In the case of Abimelech, he's a contrast to the Christ. 
But in the case of these other judges, there are certain characteristics that are the same. What do you mean? Let me give you an example of this. Go through the judges with me. Othniel was the first judge. We've talked about Othniel. He was the spirit-filled judge. But what was it that Othniel did? He fought for his bride. He fought for his bride. Judges chapter 1 verse 12 tells us. And Ephesians 5.24 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. He fought for his bride just like Othniel did. Which is why Revelation 19 verse 7 tells us, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. By the way, it was asked by Michelle recently, she doesn't even know I know this, but uh, what are we going to wear You know, when Jesus comes? I, I love the question. Because it says fine linen. You want to wear, wear linen? And what, wasn't it that you'd rather wear a sweatsuit? Was that it? A Holy Spirit sweatsuit, okay. Fine linen, bright and clean is what we're told now, but they may be linen sweatsuits or linen looking jeans. I don't know what it's going to look like. But you know what? You're not going to care what you wear. Because you're going to be so covered by the Spirit. You're going to be in the presence of Jesus. And it's going to be awesome because Jesus fought for His bride. He stretched out His arms and died for His bride. Othniel, the Spirit-filled, Spirit-led judge, fought for His bride. Oxa, the daughter of Caleb, and he won his bride. Ehud, who I enjoyed talking about so much back when we did. Ehud, the southpaw sword bearer. Ehud, who drove that sword. He drove his point home. Just as Jesus drives his point home with his sword, the word of God. It's a similar comparison. It's interesting. Matthew 5.17. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And you need to understand when he says not the smallest letter or stroke, what he's saying here, the smallest letter is the Yod in Hebrew. Yod, it's like a little apostrophe. Smallest letter of all the Hebrew letters. That's the letter that's being used there. Not even the Yod is going to pass away from the law. Or the stroke. What's the stroke? It's a tiny little line that differentiates different letters from other letters in the Hebrew. Kind of like the letter R and the letter P for us. There's one line that just drops down and that's how we know it's an R versus a P. And that's what Jesus is saying. Not even the stroke, not even something that small is disappearing from the law, from the Torah, from the Bible until all things are accomplished. I am the fulfiller of the law. How so, Jesus? Well, because it's all about me. Because it's all Jesus throughout this amazing, amazing book. So why is the teaching of the word so paramount at the bridge? Because it was paramount to Jesus Christ. Shamgar, the third judge, whose name is one of my favorites, Shamgar. He was a farmer, a farmer who used what he had in his hands. He was a farmer. He had an ox goat, we're told. And he took out 600 Philistines with his ox goat. He just had this farming tool that became a weapon and he used what was in his hands to destroy and drive away the enemy. And the same can be said again of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. John the Baptist said this of Jesus. He said, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather up his wheat into the barn. That is, those who believe in him, faithful people. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John 3.35 says the Father loves the Son, Jesus said this, and has given all things into His hand. And so what did Jesus do with what was in His hand? He healed. 
He blessed. He raised from the dead. He fed thousands with his hands. And then he spread out those hands and he died. He used what was in his hands. Psalm 22.16 tells us, For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And he even allowed the ox goad of a Roman spear to be driven into his side as final proof that he was dead. Proof of his atonement for us. And when he returns, he will have the winnowing fork in his hands. You see, the question to ask in all of these stories, with each and every judge we look at, is what can I learn and know about the person of Jesus Christ? What does this judge tell me? What is indicated here about Jesus? And so we come to the fourth judge and say, well, this one's interesting. Deborah. Deborah? Deborah, the mother of Israel? How is a mother picturesque of Jesus? Does it surprise you to think of Jesus as having a mother's heart? He did, you know. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 49:15, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you, says the Lord. It's the heart of a mom. Even here we can draw comparison to Jesus as he wept over Jerusalem. For he said, Matthew 23:37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That's what a mom does. The way a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wing, and Jerusalem, you are unwilling. So even in Deborah, we see the mothering characteristics. She calls herself not a warrior, not some kind of queen. She calls herself a mother in Israel, pointing us toward the caring heart of Jesus Christ. Gideon, Gideon, the fifth judge, is a valiant warrior. He led his army of 300 to fight the Midianite army of 135,000, 450 to 1 odds. We talked about this last Wednesday, or the Wednesday before. But his weapons in this battle, and if you miss this, listen, Gideon's weapons when he fought the Midianites were three things. He had a shofar, a trumpet, a ram's horn. He had a clay pitcher, and he had a torch stuck inside the clay pitcher. That's what his men, that was the armaments of Gideon's army. A trumpet, a torch, and a pitcher made out of clay. And when they came down out of the hills at night, when the pitchers were broken, the torches came out, and the Midianites, who were afraid of the dark, ran screaming like babies and killed each other as they ran off. And it's an awesome story. How does it picture Jesus? Jesus went to battle the same way, carrying nothing more than a clay pitcher and a torch. A clay pitcher, frail, breakable human flesh. That's what Jesus encompassed himself in when he came to the earth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But John says, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so as Gideon's army, they broke those pitchers and the light burst out. So when the pitcher of Jesus Christ, the clay pot, the flesh that was frail, broke, the light was able to come out. It was through the death of Jesus that the glory of Jesus was once again powerfully revealed for us. Matthew wrote the following. He said in Matthew 4.14 that Jesus came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the, through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 9.1 and 2. And then Matthew quotes 
the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land of shadow of, of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. The light of the Spirit of Christ bursting forth out of the crushed pitcher of His body on the cross. Even in Gideon's battle, we see a picture of Jesus Christ. And by the way, you and I have that same light within us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4-7 that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, clay pots. We have a treasure hidden inside these vessels, these earthenware vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And Jim, I'll tell you this and everybody else, it's through our brokenness that the glory of God comes out. It's when, like Jesus, we are broken that the Spirit really can shine and do His work in and among us. What about the next guy? The sixth judge, Abimelech. Abimelech is a usurper. He was the false king. He ruled over Israel for three years, but he, he usurped that rule. He took it upon himself. It wasn't truly given to him. His name, Abimelech, means son of the king. Which is interesting because isn't Jesus Christ the son of the king? But they are completely different. Abimelech is in contrast to Jesus just as Antichrist is in contrast to Jesus Christ. We went through that Wednesday, the contrast of the two. Abimelech's murderous ambition is more like Jesus Christ, or more like Antichrist, sorry, than than Jesus Christ. But even when you look at the counterfeit, the real thing becomes more real. What do they do with bank tellers when they're trying to teach how to recognize the counterfeit? You look at both. You learn the distinctions. You see the the differences between the counterfeit and the real thing. And by the way, any time there is a counterfeit, there's always a real thing that the counterfeit is based off of. So when there are false Christs arising, when there are antichrists arising in the world, as John says and the Bible says, there will be. In fact, John says many antichrists have come, have come when you see those false leaders. Well, they're just counterfeit of the real leader who is to come and who will come, Jesus Christ. Now, all of that brings us to these two simple verses. You've got two verses. We'll be done real quickly this morning. Two verses. We have the whole history of the people of faith. Going through six of the judges, we come to the seventh judge. His name is Tola. Tola. Now we read these two verses about Tola, and that's all Tola gets, just two verses. And J. Vernon McGee says the following in his commentary. He says, Not one thing is recorded about any of his achievements. Although he was a judge in Israel for 23 years, there's not one thing that can be mentioned about the deeds of this man. From the day he was born to the day he died, all you have here is what's on his tombstone, born, died, and that's it. Now I love J. Vernon McGee, but I have to respectfully disagree. Listen to the first verse. Now after Abimelech died, Tola the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel. And he lived in Shamir, in the hill country of Ephraim. We know this about Tola. He arose to save Israel. He arose to save Israel. And that to me sounds an awful lot like Jesus Christ once again. He arose to save Israel. Who else but Jesus did that? Arose to save Israel. But wait a minute, Rick. You might say, didn't Jesus arise to save everyone? So I see you're trying to make a comparison, but it kind of falls apart a little bit because Tola just arose to save Israel. And Jesus, he arose, he resurrected to save everyone, right? Yeah, but not at first. What are you talking about? Matthew 10, verse 5. 
Jesus sent the twelve out after instructing them, and he said, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus' first mission when he came to planet earth was to save Israel. To go to the people of Israel such that he even told his apostles, don't go to the Gentiles. Not yet anyway. That's for later. First, we go to Israel. I want to read something to you and you can follow if you want. Matthew chapter 15. A confusing but interesting little story that happened when Jesus was in the city of Tyre and Sidon. Matthew chapter 15, if you want to quickly turn over there, verse 22. Jesus is in this region of Tyre and Sidon. And it tells us that a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Watch what Jesus does. It's shocking. He did not answer her a word. What? He ignored her. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. So Jesus doesn't answer her a word, and his disciples say, Will you just get rid of her already? She's bugging us, this Gentile. We don't need her here among us. Interesting. But he only answered and said, listen to verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Sorry, I'm not here for you, said Jesus. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he goes a step further. He says, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. Now let me soften this just a bit for you. The word dogs there is puppies. <laughs> you know, there's there's a cuteness to it. It's not it's not, you know, like saying donkey or you know, it's not like really getting a dig in at her. It's just it's not right to take what's for the children and give it to, you know, the the, the pets. It's it's for the children. <laughs> But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Which, by the way, is what we're doing here this morning. We are feeding from the crumbs that fall from the master's table. We're feeding on every, every bit of scripture we can get our mouths on, as much as we can take in. And Jesus said to her, Oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Does this mean Jesus had no regard for the Gentiles? Absolutely not. And he did heal her daughter, and he was impressed by her great faith. But Jesus says later in John chapter 10, verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, that would be Israel, and my own know me, that is Israel who has faith in him. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And he's talking about Israel. How do you know this, Rick? Because the very next sentence he talks about us. He says, I have other sheep, which are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. You see, just like the description we have of Tola, the seventh judge, Jesus arose to save Israel first. But then through that, also to save all of us. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And I don't know about you, but I'm just jazzed to be a part of this thing. Just to be involved at all thrills me to death. Just to be grafted in. You're not one of the original sons of, of Abraham. 
You're, you're not a son of, of Jacob. You're not really, you know, by the flesh. You don't have a heredity that goes back into Israel. No, I don't. But, man, I've been pulled into this thing, and I am thrilled to be here. I'm so thankful to be a part of what God is doing. For the Son of Man, Luke 19.10, is come to seek and save that which was lost. And God so loved the world, John 3.16, you know the verse, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. But gang, listen, there's more to this whole comparison in Tola than meets the eye. More Jesus-like qualities in this man Tola than we even pull out of this first verse, the idea that He arose to save Israel. In fact, this leads us to the most striking comparison of Tola and Jesus. Tola's father was named Pua. Nice name. His granddad was Dodo. In our language, we read those and we might call them stinky and bird brain. But that's not what it meant for them. Pua and Dodo in the Hebrew, Pua means splendid. Splendid. Dodo in the Hebrew means, husbands, don't use this with your wives, it means beloved. So don't go home and start calling your wife Dodo. Well, just mean Dodo in the Hebrew, you know. Beloved. We have splendid and beloved. This is, this is where Tola comes from. A splendid father, a beloved grandfather. Great names and a great tribe of people. Tola is the name you don't want. Because Tola's name means worm. Worm. This is my son, Worm. That's his brother Sluggo over there and his sister Katie did. Where does this guy... How would you name your child Worm? And these are all the little maggots in the family. You know? How can anyone in the world compare Tola, Worm, to Jesus? Well, Jesus did. Psalm 22, verse 6. Again, a great prophecy of the crucifixion. I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. Gang, the worm arose to save. Jesus was Tola on the cross. <laughs> he was a worm, despised and rejected for my sin. But this name also interestingly translates to something else that we see in the Bible. You don't always see it translated worm. There are times when it's worm. Right here it's just translated Tola because they don't want to tell you what Tola's name really means. But it's also translated scarlet. As in that blood red color that we see flowing through the pages of scripture. It was one of the primary colors in the tabernacle. There were four and scarlet was one of the primary four. This bloody color. It's in the doorway of the tabernacle. It's even in the veil leading to the Holy of Holies. It was woven into the ephod and the breastpiece of the high priest of Israel. This scarlet color, tola. The color of the worm. It was used as part of the purification rites of the priests if they went around or, or were near dead people. You take a red heifer and the ashes of the red heifer and it was mixed with a scarlet thread, a tola thread, mixed in and burned up as part of the offering for the priests. It was a scarlet thread, a tola thread, that hung from the window of Rahab that saved her and her family when Joshua invaded Jericho. It was the color of the robe, by the way, scarlet, that the Roman soldiers hung on Jesus' back, wrapped around him as they beat him and mocked him. And you will find this, and I encourage you, by the way, do a word study on scarlet in your Bibles. Follow it through from beginning to end and look at the stories and the implications bound up in this blood-red word. 
The reason, by the way, that tola means scarlet and worm is because the tola worm was used to make the scarlet dye. And this is how it worked. The people could take these worms and they would grind them into a pasty red substance that could be used to dye cloth and fabric. And so tola, worm, also meant scarlet because that was the color they could draw out of this worm. And this is the name of this judge. And the tola gang, it's the perfect picture for Jesus. We're told that when it was time to reproduce, this little worm, this tola, would climb a tree and it would lay eggs there and then it would spread its body out over the eggs to protect them until they hatched. But when they hatched, it didn't move, it stayed there. And the larva of the tola would begin to eat through the body of the worm that covered them until it was dead and they were filled up and they ate through it and then moved on their way and all that was left there was a scarlet mark on the branch of the tree. It's interesting that this scarlet mark after approximately three days would turn into a white flaky substance that would fall to the ground like snow. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink, and he who eats my flesh <coughs> and <coughs> excuse me, drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Just as the, the little larvae would eat through that worm, so we are invited to eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus, not as, as cannibals, but as those who want to consume as much of Jesus as we can, to draw as close to Him as possible, and to keep drawing close to Him, to be filled up with His Spirit. But then that scarlet mark on the tree, it would, it would get flaky and white and fall like snow. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be white like wool. Tola the judge arose to save Israel. Jesus, our judge, our defender, died and arose to save all the world who simply will put their faith in Him. And so all of this this morning is just to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Because every aspect, every nuance of Scripture points us to our Lord who loves us and died for us and would do anything to spend more time with us. We end on these two verses that we began with. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down. The work having been completed, He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. A life lived looking back is a life lived in despair. But Jesus died and rose that we might live lives looking forward for the joy set before us, looking forward all the way to eternity. Let's bow. And Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for reminding us of yourself time and time again for all of the, the pictures and types throughout Scripture. They're so wonderful to see. Lord, I pray, would you implant this thought in our minds every time we open up the word, that we would open it saying, where are you, Lord? Where are you, Jesus? Show yourself to us. Reveal more of your nature, more of your character, more of your love. We want to know you intimately. 
and deeply, Father. Jesus, we want to know more about you than anybody in our lives. To be completely in touch with your heart, your thoughts, your emotions, your desires. This we long for, Lord. Father, I pray this over the Bridge Fellowship. Would you make us passionate about Jesus Christ? And draw us near, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.